everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful world of ours at this moment, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to talk some more about the Titans and how we can battle the Titanic in our lives today. But before I get into the meat of it, I want to consider for just a moment the mission of this program. And I start out every single time I speak with you by saying that we're going to talk about why mythology is important to our lives today. Why is mythology important to our lives today? There are a number of ways to answer that question, and I hope that every program that you listen to provides you with some insight or illustration of the value of mythology, if not a complete answer. Joseph Campbell very succinctly put together four functions of mythology, the mystical, cosmological, sociological, and pedagogical, basically saying that mythologies are necessary to answer the questions that lie at the heart of every life. Campbell's functions provide one answer to the question. I find another in this little fragment from the poem Asphodel, That Greeny Flower by William Carlos Williams, where he writes, It is difficult to get the news from poems Yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. What I hear Carlos Williams pointing at is the poetic, the metaphoric, and the beautiful, the mystery, that mystery that I am always encouraging you to keep alive. You know, the word poem comes from the Greek poem, which means to make, to compose, to create. And they also had the phrase mythopoesis, to make myth, which meant to engage with, to kind of play it forward, to elaborate the mythologies that come down to us. And that mythopoesis, which is connected to the poetic, is what we are frequently doing here on this program. So there's a deep need, I believe, for mystery and beauty and a sense of that other dimension, the symbolic and imaginative. Frankly, I can't imagine living without it. But there's one other reason that I think that mythology is crucial for us today, and that is we will be captured by whatever we are unconscious of. And we are largely unconscious of the role of mythology in our lives today. We are myth makers. And our values and our ideas about the world and about life are contained in mythologies that we don't see as mythologies because we think they're true. And that's how we can get captured. Now, there's one last thing I want to add to this little list that I'm creating today, and that is that a myth, as Claude Levi Strauss said, is good to think with. 
When you uncover the mythic dimension of a situation, for example, it gives you ideas. It gives you ideas. And when you have ideas, then you have options. So what we've been doing here in this exploration of the Titanic is reflecting on this phenomenon in our culture. And when we look at the excessive, unlimited, unbounded, the way that we are dwarfed and flattened and numbed by this emphasis on the gigantic and the power of that, by the inflated ego, and what is ultimately a very vacuous and still dangerous rhetoric and set of values, when we reflect on that from the perspective of the Greek myth, the Titanic, and therefore then can access the notion of the Olympian, well, we get ideas. We have options. And in the last couple of programs, we've been exploring those options, and that's what I want to do today. I want to talk a little bit more about the Titanic and offer you another concrete example of something that you can do to be part of battling this force and understanding this phenomena in the world today. So the Titanic is associated with our longing for the unbounded. It's obsessed with enormity, seduced by the huge, it's inflated, and we often hear it in the rhetoric of universals and abstractions and generalizations. The kinds of speeches and pronouncements that can sound so important and yet be empty. The Titanic is excessive. It's the power of the gigantic. And the gigantic does violence to us and to everything that is relatively small. And to each specific individual, person, creature, place, moment, and thing that is subsumed in its big, 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 big picture. We feel it, as James Hillman said. We feel this, the, uh, the titanic, the, gi- the gigantic, in a couple of ways. One, it dwarfs our sensitivities. It leaves us numb, empty, alienated. And two, stressed. Stress is the result of that titanic striving and straining in our own ego under the influence and in response to the titanic in our societies. The titanic is running amok. Its nature is to run amok. It's powerful. It's causing great harm today. And yet the irony is it's empty. That is not imaged that emptiness is also our clue to how we can counteract it or combat it. We're not going to do that by repressing it, but we are going to do it by populating that emptiness, filling it up with the specific, by giving our attention to others, beings and creatures and things that are here now in this space and moment in time with us. 
Now, I read a really beautiful piece in the New York Times recently called How a Bird Feeder Revived My Marriage. And that's the source of the title of this program, Feed the Birds, and I want to share it with you now. It was written by a woman named Titsa Sen, and it showed up in the Modern Love section because Titsa is writing about something that happened between her and her husband. She tells us that he was no longer the man that she had married. Basically, he was burned out. Life no longer seemed to hold much promise. He was in middle age. His career was no longer fascinating. It was full of problems. His, their grown sons had left home. And there wasn't a lot happening between him and his wife. Until, she writes, he installed the bird feeder. But that's so messy, I said. In Mumbai, India, where we live, apartments are tiny. And while we have a little veranda with a few green plants, we do not have birds. And I didn't see the point of putting up a bird feeder on our small open space to feed non-existent creatures. To try to feed birds in a city that's rife with starvation and poverty also seemed too privileged and romantic a notion something only rich people did in the Western world. Not here. Not in Mumbai. We live in India, I reminded him. Birds belong to the world, he replied. And that was that. So the husband gets a bird feeder, you know, just one of those plastic things that you can get on Amazon and some bird seed, and they fill it up, and they put it out on the veranda. And she says that it stood there, solitary and defiant, in the muggy monsoon weather, in a city where she never saw birds fly or come to roost. Well, once the bird feeder was installed, their lives continued for a time. They went to their jobs, they watched TV, they tried to fill up their time with various and sundry activities, answering emails, whatever. And then one day, one morning, the two of them were sitting together. The husband was reading the newspaper and she was eating her breakfast and she looks up and he was signaling her with his eyes over the paper and pointing out at the little veranda. And Titsa looked out there and there was a bright green parrot with a red beak, perched on the ledge of the bird feeder. The parrot cocked his head. They cocked their heads. The parrot looked at them carefully. They studied him. And then the parrot dug into the seed and ate. Now both of them were very surprised, and the husband was delighted And this began, slowly but surely, a little stream of bird visitors. And in fact, now those mornings, which had been essentially full with the dullness of the coming day before it had even started, now had a little special element of anticipation. One morning, a sparrow visited the bird feeder. 
Did you know they are almost extinct in this city? My husband whispered. We waited to see which feathered friend would drop in next. Who would be vying for top spot? Who would win the day? Now the husband's interest in the bird feeder deepened as the birds started to come and as different types of birds started to come. He investigated the right size of hole and types of seeds for the kinds of birds that had been coming and he tried to engage his wife Tietze in this and she wasn't that interested but she noticed that he was very happy when he was thinking about the birds and she also noticed that the care that he took in feeding the bird feeder and kind of fussing over the birds that came was not unlike the actions of a mother. In fact, if he came home and realized that not very much seed was gone and that there hadn't been very much bird activity that day, he worried. Although she didn't share his enthusiasm, the presence of the bird feeder was doing something useful and adding a little bit of delight to their mornings together. She started looking forward to it because it brought her husband closer to her. They had something to share. And as she started to get a little bit more interested in the birds, then their conversation about the birds started to become a little bit more animated and a little bit more interesting. Our conversation, she said, often began with a bird fact. A male songbird sings 2,000 times a day, for example. A pigeon's feathers outweigh its bones. And her husband started keeping a little journal of the birds that show up. How many were there, who came, how long they stayed. But at the same time that Tietze was enjoying the, their shared interest and the positive effects on her husband's moods, She was also occasionally feeling a little bit superfluous because his extra interest was going to the birds, after all, and not to her. And this made her feel weird. She wondered if you could be jealous of birds. And when she was at home alone and a bird came to the bird feeder, she sometimes found herself giving the bird in evil eye. Now one morning, Tietze's husband was away, and she sat in her favorite spot with her coffee. Her father, she tells us, had been hospitalized, and she was very busy at work, facing an important deadline, and feeling completely overwhelmed and hopeless. She writes, I wiped my tears in anger and gazed at the bird feeder, which was now an out-of-focus blur. Someone cocked his head around the feeder. It was my friend the parrot, or rather, my husband's friend. Well, tough luck, I thought. There's just me to contend with today. He stared at me. I stared back. We seemed to be playing a silly game of who blinks first. I moved closer, but he didn't budge. He continued eating little bites from the bird feeder as I inched closer. 
Tisa got close enough to really take in the beauty of the bird, and he didn't move. He looked at her a couple of times and said, Not too close, lady. But he didn't move. And for the first time, she really took in the bird. She listened to him. She watched him eat. She imagined his pleasure, she says, and shared in his contentment. It was such a simple joy, such a simple kindness. I smiled as fresh tears threatened to spill again. That night, when her husband came home, she was affectionate and happy towards her husband. Is everything okay, he said. Yes, she says, I shared a meal with your friend today. The birds had brought them together. And the birds had brought her something, too. You know, we start off wanting to do something big, to have big experiences in life, to be significant. And we have this fantasy that the meaningful contacts are going to be writ large on a large stage. In fact, Tietze says that you do start off that way, but then you reach a stage in life when you want to do good and you want to give back and you want to find yourself. And you start looking for a way to do that. And sometimes it's really elaborate stuff, especially if you have money. You can take big trips, you can make big gifts, you can start organizations. But the small moves, like putting up a bird feeder, (laughs) ordering an ugly bird feeder, she says, are available to all of us. And it has made, for her and her husband, all the difference. In this story about Tiza and her husband and their bird feeder in Mumbai, India, I really feel the quiet power that comes in tending the other, in reaching beyond the confining numbness and the habitual concerns that we retreat to when the world is too big, too much, when there's too much bad news. I think it illustrates the message from the last program, the one about the power of names and naming, that learning names of the creatures and the things that are around you is a way to see, to recognize, and therefore then to get curious, to get curious, and to begin to know the others. In that program, we talked about how The names can become seeing individuals and making connections. And those connections can become companionship and even communion. Communion is possible where there was emptiness and loneliness. And Tietze's story, the sense that life was over, in a sense, was replaced by a real abundance In the last program, the one on names I'm talking about, I proposed a couple of experiments to you. And I want to share with you the results of one of mine. I want to tell you what happened 
with the experiment of learning the name of something or someone that's living near you that you don't know. And it started with my husband texting me a photo of a snake that he saw on our property. And this was a little tiny photo. I couldn't really see it, but I got a sense of the coloration. And so right away, I I assumed it was a speckled rattlesnake because we do see a fair number of those on our property. But then I thought, what is a speckled rattlesnake doing out in the sun in the heat of the day? Because they simply don't do that. Well, later on, I saw Philip and he said, did you see my picture of the snake? And I said, yeah, I didn't, I couldn't really tell what it was. Was it a rattlesnake? And he said, no, it didn't have any rattles. And here's the other funny thing. It came towards me. Rattlesnakes typically do not come towards you. So we went outside and he showed me where it went. He said, you know, it went behind here, behind this cabinet and into this hole. Well, while we were standing there, the snake peeked out at us. It was banded with red and cream colored bands and it had a black mark on its head and just calmly surveyed us, this round black eye looking at us with real interest. Well, I went and looked the snake up and I discovered that it was a coach whip. The variation that we have out here in the Mojave is commonly called a red racer and they're active during the day. So that answered that question. They eat small lizards. We have plenty of those. But here's what really got my attention. In the description, they said that the coach whip is a quote-unquote curious snake. Well, I certainly felt that curiosity in the moment that I was watching the snake with my husband. And so I went to visit the snake over the next few days. I don't know its gender. I started calling it Sam. But for three days in a row, I went over near the hole and sat down on the ground. And the snake came out and checked me out. It was a most curious snake. Now, I haven't seen it lately. Sam, the red racer, might be gone. Our lizard population is certainly greatly diminished. But sitting there with that snake, I felt that I had a new neighbor. It was a powerful experience. It was a small experience. In fact, maybe it's not even worthy of sharing. But when we think big, and when we think that the special should be big, we miss so many opportunities. We miss so many opportunities in the ordinary. Taking those opportunities in the ordinary is how it all begins. Alice Kohler, who was a philosopher who wrote a couple of books, The Unknown Woman and Stations of Solitude, said that one of the most important discoveries she made was that to care for something was the beginning of loving something. And she discovered this when she adopted a dog named Logos. 
she really didn't know very much about dogs, and she also didn't know what she was after in her life at all, (laughs) and spent a significant amount of time alone trying to figure that out. And what she discovered was that if she wanted to be connected, if she wanted to express the love that she had, to allow herself to care for something and to obligate herself to its care, like filling a bird feeder, was a surefire way to do it. Now, I realize I'm lucky to live in a wild place, but it hasn't always been like that. And as the story shows us, any place, however unlikely, even Mumbai, India, is a place where we can issue an invitation to others to come near. And one of the amazing things about birds is that they are everywhere. Each of us can feed the birds. Ever since Paleolithic times, birds have been very special to us. The early goddess figures that we have, those goddesses are often inscribed or shaped with the symbols and forms of eggs and also birds. There's a marriage there between our experience of the birds and what they suggest to us about creation and fertility that goes back thousands and thousands of years. There are many ways that birds capture the human imagination. For one thing, they inhabit the air, the upper realms, and yet some of them also live on the water. They can dive into the depths. They can burrow into the ground. They have an incredible flexibility and abilities that exceed ours because, hello, they can fly. This has been assumed to be a source of power and wisdom. Williams Wordsworth wrote, Happier of happy though I be, like them, the birds, I cannot take possession of the sky. Mount with a thoughtless impulse and wheel there, one of a mighty multitude, whose way and motion is a harmony and dance magnificent. Birds are born twice, as an egg and as a chick, suggesting to us the themes of rebirth. They are messengers, quick, light, and powerful. They defy gravity. You think of Noah's dove. When the waters receded from the ark, and he sent the dove out to find out whether or not there was land for millennia, Prophets have listened to the calls and the songs of birds, watched their flight patterns and movement, carried feathers. Even the gods, like the Norse Odin, depend on birds. Odin's two most reliable companions were ravens, one named thought and one named memory, who traveled the three worlds every day to bring him all of the news. Birds, because they can go where they can go, understand the world and its mysteries in ways that are inaccessible to us. Inaccessible to us unless we heed them. Shamans often have birds as teachers. The birds teach them, share their powers, and take them to spirit realms. And there are specific powers and attributes, obviously, associated with specific types of birds. 
The eagles, for example, are associated with courage and vision, far sight, because they are so big and strong and fly so high and see so well. Owls are often associated with wisdom. But there are many cultural inflections, and these differences reflect the remarkable diversity and complexity of these beings that we often just call birds. They are singular in their intelligence. They talk, they use tools, they solve problems. Many of them can circle the globe, and despite weeks and even months and thousands of miles, find their way home again. What makes a bird a bird? Feathers. Feathers are a design marvel serving a variety of functions and they're beautiful. In our poor misguided age, so many of us miss the real magic that is bound up there. You can feel the power of a bird in a single feather. And if you, like me, pick them up when you see them, you know what I mean. Everywhere around the world, our ancestors revered birds as the material manifestation of the breath of the world, a symbol of the world's soul, and the union of instinct and spirit expressed in song. And I have barely scratched the surface. Birds offer us so much as literal being and presences in the world with us and as symbols and metaphors and catalysts for the human imagination. So wherever you are, in your battle against the Titanic, in your quest to fill the emptiness and relieve the stress imposed on us by the gigantic, and loud and empty. Wherever you are, beach, forest, patio, your back deck, postage, stamp-sized balcony, park, bench, feed the birds. Recognize whoever comes. As Emily Dickinson said, hope is a thing with feathers. Feed the birds, and you will be fed too. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave, for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And if you find something of value in Myth in the Mojave, please join the community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs archived there, as well as free downloads of all the new things I'm creating. And you will play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.